As Israel commits an horrific genocide in Gaza, more and more U.S. lawmakers want to make it illegal to tell the truth about the murders or about 75 years of occupation and displacement. You cannot say, for example, what the Secretary General of the United Nations said, which is that the suffocating occupation has led to this crisis and then couple that with a condemnation of Hamas. That's unacceptable. And as we refuse to turn away from Gaza, continued attacks on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank further illustrates Israel's plan to remove all Palestinians from Palestine. Freedom for Palestinians needs to be put on the table right now. This is a we're, we're, we're at a historic intersection right now. A real historic opportunity has made itself available right now to us. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. More than 7,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza as Israel continues relentless bombing of what is recognized as an open-air prison or concentration camp. Half the population of more than 2 million people are children, and half the population are displaced from their homes. Despite the obvious genocide occurring, the Biden administration is doubling down on its support for more military aid to Israel. He reportedly appealed to the newly elected Speaker of the House, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, for a more than $100 billion package of aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. At the same time, he accused Gaza's Ministry of Health of exaggerating the numbers of people murdered by Israel. He said, quote, I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging a war, end quote. He said, Ashraf Al-Kidra, a spokesman for the health ministry, said in a press conference, quote, we reject the U.S. administration's questioning of the figures we announce about the number of martyrs and wounded. We consider this position devoid of all human standards, ethics, and the basic value of human rights that it praises, end quote. The health ministry also released a detailed report listing every individual person with their name that has been killed. Adding additional provocation to this incendiary rhetoric, the United States bombed two areas of eastern Syria early Friday morning in what it called, quote, self-defense strikes, end quote, against locations they said were being used by so-called Iranian-backed militia groups to attack U.S. troops. The U.S. military is still illegally occupying both Syria and Iraq, after the U.S. was defeated in a years-long dirty war against Syria, it refused to remove its troops, which now illegally occupy one-third of the country and have been accused of stealing Syria's oil and contaminating its pristine wheat fields. And the U.S. also occupies portions of Iraq. After destroying that country and after Iraqi lawmakers voted in 2020 to oust the U.S., after the U.S. used Iraq as the staging ground to assassinate Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and Iraqi officials. 
In the meantime, the response from the American public to the ongoing genocide in Gaza is continuing with demonstrations, sometimes massive in scale, like a rally of tens of thousands here in D.C. on October 21st, or like the national walkout on October 25th, with participation from students at Howard University, where a midday rally was held. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Howard University has a $90 million contract with the Department of Defense, and there are students on our campus who don't support our university having relations with militarist interests because we understand that those corporate militarist interests do not represent the interests of students, do not represent the interests of faculty, or even university workers on this campus. Resistance, and so as Howard students particularly, we understand that black liberation is linked with Palestinian liberation. And so today we came out and we showed solidarity. We chanted, we had speakers, we educated, and we informed. Because at the end of the day, none of us are free until Palestine is free. And that's why it's so crucial to be out here and to be organizing for Palestinians and supporting them in their fight and their resistance of Israel's colonialist occupation. Boycotting is one of the strongest tools we have right now. We know that, unfortunately, even our most progressive politicians are still lending to Israel here. So our vote in the polls can't necessarily help all that much. But where our vote can help is on our dollar. Because if corporations aren't making money, then they quite literally have no reason to exist. So two main things that people can start right away, easy ones, Starbucks and McDonald's. Their stocks have already gone down because of the amount of boycotting that's happening. And this can make a very large change if people were to get on board. Thank you to the justice journalist Chuck Modi for his coverage at Howard University. Protesters from Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now also returned to Capitol Hill on October 25th, sitting in at the offices of Senator Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer and Representatives Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark. They demanded an immediate ceasefire and for the lawmakers to sign onto a resolution being circulated among members of Congress to call for a ceasefire. The fact that even Senator Bernie Sanders, long an advocate for the Palestinian people, has not signed onto the resolution is one indication of the subservience to a new war narrative organized to crush any dissent to the Zionist war narrative that erases the 75 years of murder, dispossession, and occupation of the Palestinian people by the Israeli apartheid regime. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is ordering that chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine be shut down on Florida campuses, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina told Fox News that he believes all foreign college students participating in campus protests for Palestine should be deported, and that colleges that permit this constitutionally protected free speech should be stripped of federal funding. These authoritarian proposals and actions by two Republican presidential candidates are happening as House Republicans have elected the far-right legislator Mike Johnson of Louisiana to be the new House Speaker. Johnson is described as the intellectual architect behind the January 6th scheme to overturn the results of that year's presidential election and keep Donald Trump in the White House. More about Mike Johnson's later in the show with Professor Gerald Horn.
And finally, in culture and media, Middle East Eye is citing information from a confidential source that Israel plans to use a banned nerve gas like sarin to kill Hamas fighters inside the vast system of tunnels beneath Gaza. Journalist Seymour Hirsch reports on his blog that Israel is considering using massive bombs known as JDAMs inside Gaza. These bombs kill everyone within a half mile. And the New York Times is among the news outlets reporting that Israel did attempt a ground invasion of Gaza in recent days, but came under fire and turned back. More evidence is emerging that some of the Israelis killed during the Hamas attacks beginning on October 7th were killed by Israeli forces. Manda Weiss is one of the outlets reporting that Hamas's strategy was to take hostages and trade these hostages for the thousands of Palestinians languishing, many without charge, inside Israeli prisons. The reports say that Much of the killing was done or provoked by the IDF. For example, on October 9th, two days after the initial attacks, many hostages were still alive when the IDF made a decision to go into various sites and kill everyone, Hamas resistance fighters, as well as the hostages. A new analysis by FAIR, or Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, reveals that even though the call the world over is for a ceasefire in Gaza, that corporate media rarely mentions the idea of a ceasefire or de-escalation. The report says that while ABC World News Tonight, CBS Evening News, NBC Nightly News, and PBS NewsHour aired a total of 105 segments primarily about Israel-Gaza, and broader repercussions of the conflict during the week of October 12th through the 18th, only eight segments included the word ceasefire or some form of the word de-escalate. And finally, a four-minute breakthrough news video by Kay Pritzker titled Israel is one of the most racist countries in the world was removed by Instagram after it had been seen 12 million times. Here on On the Ground, we have a special place in our heart for banned content. So we will make sure you can hear that video on this show. And one last note, the National March for Palestine is happening November 4th at 2 p.m. Starting from Freedom Plaza right here in Washington, D.C. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Israel is one of the most racist countries in the world. While you'll never hear anyone in the mainstream media say this, this is actually one of the most important things you need to understand if you want to know what's happening right now. From its inception, the whole idea of Israel as a country was based on racism. Israel was conceived as a Jewish state, and while there's nothing wrong in principle with Jews having a homeland, the problem is that they insisted that that homeland had to be in Palestine, which already belonged to someone. 
the Palestinians. The slogan of Israel's founders was a land for a people for a people without a land. But deep down, they all knew that the only way to have a Jewish majority in Palestine, an Arab country, was to expel the Arabs. One of the founders of Israel, Yosef Weitz, wrote, there's no room in the country for both peoples. There's no way but to transfer the Arabs from here to neighboring countries. Israel was quite literally founded by expelling and massacring hundreds of thousands of Arabs in a years-long process called the Nakba. And when you found a country based on racial exclusion, you're gonna get a culture that fosters and celebrates racial exclusion. Because countries that commit terrible atrocities rarely acknowledge committing those atrocities. And the presence of Palestinians who remained in Palestine became a constant reminder, not only of the violence that founded Israel, but of the constantly looming threat that they might come back and try to reclaim their land. Every day you can find videos coming out of Israel showing Israelis calling for all Arabs to die. Insulting the Prophet Muhammad. Desecrating mosques. Spitting on Christians. Mocking and celebrating the murder of Palestinians. Committing violent hate crimes against Palestinians. Watching Gaza get carpet bombed from a cliffside for entertainment. But don't just go off these anecdotes. Let's look at some of the polls. One poll found that two-thirds of Israeli teens believe Arabs to be less intelligent, uncultured, and violent. It also found that 50% of Israelis wouldn't live in the same building as Arabs, wouldn't befriend Arabs, wouldn't let their children befriend Arabs, and wouldn't let Arabs into their homes. Another poll found that 60% of Israeli Jews want segregation from Arabs. Another poll found that half of Israeli Jews agree with the statement, most Jews are better than most non-Jews because they were born Jews. The poll also found that 88% of Israeli Jews would be disturbed if their son befriended an Arab girl, and 90% would be disturbed if their daughter befriended an Arab boy. This poll found that about half of Israeli high schoolers don't think Arabs should have the right to vote. Another poll showed that almost half of Israeli Jews don't want Arabs teaching their kids. Not only are these views widely held in Israeli society, they're also represented in government, which codifies these sentiments into law. For example, Israel is a law that says if an Israeli marries a Palestinian or someone from several other regional Arab states, that person isn't allowed to move in with said Israeli. This law was passed in 2003, but it's been renewed every single year since. Israel also doesn't allow interreligious marriage to be performed in the country, which is meant to deter Jews from marrying non-Jews. In 2018, Israel passed the nation-state law, a law which has constitutional status, which says the right to exercise national self-determination, i.e. have rights, is the exclusive right of Jews no one else. There's also the Nakba law, which makes it illegal to acknowledge the Nakba, the expulsions of Palestinians that were needed to found Israel. This would be like passing a law to make it illegal to talk about indigenous genocide or slavery in America. There's also the admissions committee law, which basically allows towns to operate panels that deny applications for entry based on socio-cultural compatibility, which essentially just legalizes racist housing discrimination. In Israel, advocating genocide of Palestinians doesn't hurt your chances of holding a high position in government. And in fact, in many cases, it helps. In 2014, Israeli lawmaker Ayelet Shaked wrote an unhinged rant on Facebook, calling all Palestinians enemy combatants and saying their mothers should be killed for giving birth to, quote, little snakes. The next year, she was appointed Minister of Justice by Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Itamar Ben-Gavir, a lifelong admirer of Mer Kahan, an Arab exterminationist, a man who praised the Jewish settler who killed the Palestinian for throwing a rock at him, a man who was famously acquitted after being criminally charged for chanting death to Arabs, is Israel's current Minister of National Security. He's not some fringe figure either. He's one of the most popular politicians in Israel right now. In the last few days, Israel's been working hard to cast itself as the victim. The victim of hatred, the victim of terrorism, the victim of anti-Semitism. That they have no choice but to lay siege to Gaza. But underneath this carefully concocted victim complex is a racist, Jewish supremacist state that's been trying to finish the job that the Nakba started for decades. And really, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. After all, they're literally cutting off water and electricity to a city of 2 million people right now. Their generals talk openly about flattening Gaza and killing the animals, meaning Palestinians. It's obvious their goal is genocide. So, we must ask ourselves, what is the dictionary definition of terrorism? The systematic use of terror, especially as a means of coercion. But what is terror? According to the dictionary I hold in my hand, terror is violent or destructive acts such as bombing, committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or government into granting their demands. So what's a terrorist? They calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terror is When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love They calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terror is Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge Seems like the ragheads and packies are worrying your dad But your dad's favourite food is curry and kebab It's funny but it's sad how they make your mummy hurry with her bags Rather read the sun and study all the facts Tell me, what's the bigger threat to human society? BAE systems or homemade IEDs Remote control drones killing off human lives Or man with homemade bomb committing suicide I know you were terrified when you saw the towers fall It's all terrified, some forms are more powerful It seems nuts, how could there be such agony when more Israelis die from peanut allergies It's like the definition didn't ever exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist they is They calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me I tell them this I'm all about peace and love They calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by Miko Pellet. He's an international human rights activist, speaker, and the author of the books, the General's son, the journey of an Israeli in Palestine and injustice, the story of the Holy land foundation five. Welcome to on the ground, Miko. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. I think I should just tell the audience that I was reaching out to you because I was trying to reach Isa Amro, the human rights activist based in Hebron, I believe on the West Bank. And you told me that he is missing. 
He's an internationally known human rights activist and he's been taken from his home and his plight is, is almost symbolic or emblematic of what's happening to people all over the West bank as so much attention is going, is going to the horror in Gaza. So you should know that on this show, we've been talking about the bombings, the attacks by Israeli settlers in the West Bank uh, for more than two years now, and connecting that to the attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque, which led to this uh, huge uprising uh, two years ago. And so I wanted you to just tell our listeners about what's happening in the West Bank. I saw that there was a, a bombing, an Israeli bombing of a mosque in Janine in recent days, killing two people. But I believe that dozens of Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank just in the last two weeks. So fill us in. I think it would be a good idea to you know put everything in context. You know, the way this uh, the last two weeks have been described in the media and and in people's conversations in general is a war between Israel and Hamas. You know, Hamas is a political party. It's a it's a represents you know whoever it represents. The war is is a war that Israel has waged on the Palestinian people over seventy five years ago. That's the war that's taking place. On October the seventh, a group of Palestinian fighters came out of Gaza and basically took half of the country, 22 Israeli cities and towns and settlements and so on, completely disrupted life for Israelis for more than a week. And then Israel proceeded with what can only be described as a savage act of revenge, murdering thousands and thousands of innocent civilians in Gaza, and is continuing to do so as we speak. So to say that there's a war between, between Israel and Hamas is nonsense. The war is, again, Israel la- launched a war against the Palestinian people when it was established, and it's been murdering Palestinians. It has been maintaining a vicious, racist regime of apartheid, brutality, savagery, really, against the Palestinian people all of these decades. We tend to pay attention only when something, you know, really terrible takes place or dramatic, like what we've seen, like I said, since October the 7th. Right. They, um, people are now, calling it a jailbreak. It's like, the, you know, the prisoners yeah, yeah. I mean, broke out well, of jail. It's more than a jailbreak. I mean, this was a very well-planned and well-executed military operation. Granted, there are all these rumors about raping women and beheading children, which are all untrue. And it turns out that many of the Israelis who were killed during the fighting were actually killed by Israeli forces. But that's a whole other issue. But back to your question. So the war against Palestinians goes on. Now, there's three basic groups or four basic groups of Palestinians that Israel is at war with. You have the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, which is a prison, really. There's about over 2 million people. There's a war against the Palestinians who live in the West Bank. It's about 3.5 million people. There's a war against Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. There's about 2 million people. So that's four and three and a half. Now we're at seven and a half million people. And there's also a war, an extended war, against the Palestinians who live in refugee camps outside of Palestine, like in Lebanon and in Syria and other places. And Israel wages this war against each and every one of these groups in different ways. 
But the war goes on, the pressure goes on, the racism, the violence against Palestinians goes on. So as the events of October 7th were taking place and continue, and then Israel's, like I said, savage response by slaughtering civilians by the thousands continues, with full support, by the way, of the American government and others, settlers and soldiers are doing what they do in the West Bank. There's the estimates of over 50 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank alone. Palestinian citizens of Israel are afraid to leave their homes. There was an attempt in the city of Haifa in the north to put together some kind of an event that was initiated by the Palestinian community, an event where Israelis and Palestinians come together and call for a ceasefire and calm, and the police uh, notified them that, uh, that was, they're not allowing it. The police are not allowing any dissent whatsoever. I have at least two friends, Israeli Jewish friends, that are under threat, that, that are you know, very, very outspoken against the violence and against Israeli apartheid, that are under threat. One is actually in hiding. Uh, and Palestinians like Isa Amr, Isa, Isa Amr was guess, kicked out of his, of his home. He has a home which, which also serves as a, as a center for his activities. It was declared a closed military zone. I haven't heard from him in a couple of days. Others within, in his group were detained. Uh, another gentleman, Mohammed Zahir, was detained, disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. Uh, Isa was detained the first day of, on October the 7th or October the 8th, he was detained and they took him. Nobody knew where he was for a while. So, I mean, they, the, as the world is... And they beat him and tortured him, right? Beating and torture goes without saying. When the Israelis detain or arrest the Palestinians, beating and torture is, goes without saying. There's no question that beating and torture goes with that. There's absolutely never a case where a Palestinian, eight years old, or be an adult, he or she an adult, is arrested without being tortured. That goes without saying. The abuses that Palestinians go through on a... You know, the problem is that these abuses become normal, so nobody even talks about them. You know what I mean? Isa, thankfully, is a little bit, you know, more knows how to present these things. So it was mentioned, yes, and I was tortured. You know, for most Palestinians, you know, they don't even mention it because it's like, of course, we were, of course they were tortured. That's what Israel does. Of course, Israel is bombing Gaza and murdering civilians. It's, it's been doing it for decades. This is not anything new. People are saying, oh, Hamas, because of the Hamas attacks, Israel is doing it. If anybody thinks Israel was not going to do this, maybe in a week, in a month, anyway, they're out of their minds. They're not paying attention. So this is a war against Palestinians, and the war is, goes on in lots of different ways. I mean, torturing people by denying them water, torturing people by having them afraid to come out of their home and go to work torturing people by arresting and torturing their children, torturing people by presenting them with a home demolition order and they don't know when their home will be demolished. So they could go on for months and one day they show up and two o'clock in the morning, the, the army shows up and demolishes their home. There's lots of different ways to torture people and Israel uses all of them. Every single one from the very simple basic ones all the way to what we see in Gaza right now. Exactly. And so when we look at these, what's happening on the West Bank and when we look at what's happening in Gaza, it seems, the plan seems obvious that Israel is just further trying to push Palestinians out of the country, whether it's into Egypt or whether it's, you know, just into the sea. They don't, it doesn't seem to matter in terms of villages being burned, uh, houses being demolished, people being killed. The number of prisoners, I think, has uh, doubled from like 5,000 to 10,000, and many of them are children. So uh, a lot of people just don't know what's, what's happening outside of Gaza. 
Right. I mean, uh, people are not, you know, the, the information about about Palestine is extremely one-sided and people are generally confused and um, or afraid to speak or afraid to ask. And uh, this 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 reality of, of fog, if you will, where people are afraid to talk about it, afraid to ask about it, afraid to stand up. And the lack of information creates this this huge gap in people knowing what what is going on and what their tax money is is uh, is going to, to is paying for. You know, yeah. this is um, a cruelty against an entire nation that has never had an army. Palestinians right. never had an army. You know, they talk about a war, but war. There's no army on the other side. There's not even. Never had, Palestinians never had a tank. They've never right. had and- a. You know. So there's no, you know what I mean? So it's, 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 a, it's a serious problem because if you are aware, if you want to be aware, I mean, today with social media, there are outlets, there are ways to find out, but you have to really take initiative and it's not easy. Looking at this really bizarre slanted coverage, it also seems like there's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beyond Orwellian because you basically have even Israel uh, demanding that the UN Secretary General resign for simply f- stating facts. We're living in a fact-free universe where people can't even acknowledge what they see with their eyes and ears. I think the uh, UN rapporteur that declared Bosnia to be a genocide is now declaring the same for Gaza. And so despite the report from Amnesty International, I think, or Human Rights Watch, one of them, that declared Israel to be an apartheid state. They d- they deny that. So we're just living in a, a situation where it seems that Israel has been allowed and emboldened by its supporters like, like the U.S. so long that it feels very confident saying these things on the international stage that are totally false. That's right. And, you know, the, the UN uh, the General Secretary said that the attacks uh, of October the 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Israel is outraged. Israel is now denying visas to UN workers, essential UN workers in the country, and their demands for his uh, resignation only because, and this is typical, this is typical Washington, D.C. reality. You, you tell the truth and then you get in trouble for it. And so you have to figure out, well, how am I going to fix it? The worst thing you can do on the issue of Palestine is to tell the truth when you're when you're in Washington D.C. and that's exactly that's exactly what we're talking about. It's beyond. It's really. It's really. Uh, the more we talk about it, the more we realize how 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 sick it is. Listeners to the show know that well, you were here last year and you were at Plymouth Congregational Church with the Reverend Graylin Hagler, and we played your introduction to Issa Amro, the human rights activist uh, living in Hebron. And uh, I think at that time, and, and just in general, you're known as for advocating for uh, a one-state solution with equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. But it seems to me that's obvious from these actions that these are just the latest actions that Israel had no intention of living up to any Oslo Accords or trying to create either a two-state solution or a one-state solution. They're just trying to get rid of all Palestinians, the indigenous people in that land. Yes. Yeah, so what, what, what people often fail to see is the, the, the problem is not between Israelis and Palestinians. The problem is between Israel and justice. Israel has declared war on justice, on human rights, on the possibility of peace, on the possibility of people living peacefully and with one another, Israelis and Palestinians. That's the problem. So when people hear me speak, 
And they say, oh, he's pro-Palestinian. To be pro-Palestinians means to be pro-justice. And the justice will create a better life for everyone. Free democratic Palestine, which is the entire country I call Palestine, calling it Israel, I think is a big mistake. It's all Palestine. A free democratic Palestine with equal rights is the only solution that will allow Israelis and Palestinians to live together in peace and, 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 and live, you know, healthy, normal lives, you know, raise their children and so on. And so that really needs to be the key. Now, people say, well, Israel will never allow it. Of course, Israel will never allow it. Israelis, you know, love the privilege. Nobody wants to give up their privilege, even though it's, it's actually detrimental because we saw how unsafe they are. Even, you know, even a small group of guerrilla fighters from the, one of the poorest places in the world came out and completely paralyzed the entire country. So Israelis are really not safe. But of course, everybody, nobody wants, people are afraid to give up their privilege because they think, well, something will be taken away from them. You know, when, when you get rid of the racist laws, nothing gets taken away from the privilege, but it, the privilege is just afforded to everybody, applied to everybody equally, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Israel will not agree. Of course, Israel will not agree. Israel will have to be forced. I mean, no, no racist society ever gave up its privilege unless it was forced to do so. Not in America, not in South Africa, not, not anywhere else. And they never will. It has to be a struggle. And this struggle is something that we all need to participate in. I mean, all of us, every single human being that has a conscience needs to participate in the struggle for justice in Palestine. And so even though it's portrayed as being pro-Palestinian, it is actually pro-justice, it is pro-peace, it is pro-human rights, it is pro-future. You know, that's what this is. Whereas being pro-Israel means being against justice, against peace, uh, against tolerance, and, 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 and so forth. That is the real, kind of the real picture of, of what's going on. And uh, speaking of peace, it just seems that the, the conflict now, and I know that that word is also problematic, conflict, but the situation now with the violence that is ongoing seems to only portend a wider war. You have uh, not only Israel and Israel, uh, the army uh, exchanging fire with Hezbollah on the Lebanon border, but also other countries in the region looking on and saying that they're not going to stand by and see the people in Gaza continue to be slaughtered. So, when you look at the situation now, what do you see happening next? Well, they're going to go, I'm sure they're already negotiating about a ceasefire. So that's, I think that's obvious. That's going to happen. I don't think there's going to be a regional war. I don't think the, the other parties around are, are, want that. But what I do see as being very problematic is that the only thing that, that people talk about is ceasefire. In other words, the demand and all the protests and the demand of the more, you know, the progressive voices in Congress and so on. Ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. Ceasefire will come when it comes. Ceasefire always ends up coming. That should not be the demand. Ceasefire only means we're back to where we were, you know, a few days ago. What needs to be demanded now is a real solid political solution to the question of Palestine. Freedom for Palestinians needs to be put on the table right now. This is a, we're, we're, we're at a historic intersection right now. A real historic opportunity has made itself available right now to us. There has to be a demand to end the siege on Gaza. There has to be a demand for immediate relief to the people of Gaza so that they can take care of the wounded, so that they can rebuild, so that they can have the proper, they can have water and medicine and nutrition, lift the siege, open the wall, and 
release the Palestinian prisoners, thousands of Palestinian political prisoners, and call for immediate, immediate, one person, one vote elections on all of historic Palestine, which means Israelis and Palestinians go to the polls together for a single House of Representatives, for a single government that will govern them equally as equals. That is what needs to be demanded right now. Not a ceasefire is going to happen. It's going to happen. And our demands are not going to make it happen any faster. We need to think of next year. We need to make sure that there isn't another attack on Palestinians by Israel. We need to make sure that there's not that there's no fear that Isa Amra was assassinated and his son is, is an orphan. We need to make sure that thousands and thousands of Palestinian families who have loved ones in Israeli prisons don't have to deal with that anymore, that their loved ones come home. That is what needs to happen right now. People say, well, we have to wait until the dust settles. No, we need to do it right now when the dust is up in the air and the fighting goes on. That's when you make the demands for real political change. Any serious military operation is not, is, is, should be judged not by the capacity or the military capacity, but what is gained politically. The Palestinian operation, the Palestinian guerrillas coming out of Gaza proved themselves to be beyond capable. Even Israeli generals were complimenting them on their, how capable they were. The Israeli military, the Israeli intelligence services have proven themselves to be, to be nothing more than a paper tiger. Now is the time to make political demands for the rights of Palestinians and make it permanent, unconditional, unconditional, not only if they behave well and if the Israeli likes them and Israel agrees, no, unconditional end of the siege on Gaza, unconditional rebuilding of Gaza and pouring as many resources as possible so the people in Gaza can go back to work, unconditional release of prisoners and an immediate call for one person, one vote elections, which will mean, which will mean the collapse or the dismantling of the apartheid state. These, right. these, this is the time to talk about these things. This is the time to talk about these things. All these big rallies that took place that I've seen here in New York, in sorry, in D.C., everybody's asking for ceasefire. Ceasefire is not the issue. Ceasefire will happen when it happens. That's the nature of, 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 of you know, of, of war, of, of fights like this, you know, situations like this. You're uh, you know, that. really talking about the long, the long term and the long game. Added to that, people would say the right of return. I mean, all the people in Gaza are refugees from places they can see just beyond the wall where their families used to live. You know, right. villages where, you know, 500 villages destroyed to make this this state or this entity of Israel. And right. so, I mean, I guess a lot of people would say it's not just ceasefire, but to even say that people have to remain in this open air prison of Gaza and that should be rebuilt. That would be unacceptable to many people also. Absolutely. So, you know, I, um, I, I just wanted to, I know you, we have, to, you have to go. We don't have much time. So how do you see getting from here to there? Because obviously this Israeli state, this government is not run by people who they don't have it in their mind to make these types of uh, negotiations. And, and I want to ask you this. People keep talking about this dreaded ground invasion, but it seems to me that Israel is perfectly happy to stand back, just like they did during the Great March of Return, from far away and kill people in this this time with bombs and missiles to continue to bomb Gaza. I don't really think that they want to send their people into a ground invasion. They keep talking about it as almost like a threat, but I think they're perfectly happy to stand afar and bomb in a really pathetic way, in a way, you know, not wanting to face 
Hamas fighters, you know, face to face and to to fight in Gaza. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That's exactly how I see it. There's no way in hell that they're going to uh, bring in ground forces because they know from past experience that the Palestinian fighters are far superior, far more courageous. And in fact, they already had a casualty because there was a, a um, I, I guess they tested the water and they had, a, a, they had a, a, some forces go in and one of the tanks was shot by the Palestinians. There was one casualty and several, and several Israeli soldiers were, were injured. So, you know, they're already, you know, they're already there uh, mm. in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of casualties inflicted on them by by the Palestinians. And that's not going to change. So you're absolutely right. I don't believe that they're going to that there's going to be a ground invasion at all um, because Israel is afraid. And, and what they've been saying is the Israeli military has been saying, well, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. You know, mm. we're going to do it when it's the right time. Time is right for us and that sort of thing. Whereas, in fact, we know very well that they, they are they are far too afraid. They are far too afraid to allow the, the, their forces to go in and face the Palestinians. You're you're absolutely right. There's no way they're going to do it. Yeah. Well, the the, the other thing that I've I've heard you speak on is your support for the BDS movement, and it seems to me that at this point of time, if there is anything that people can do outside of Palestine is to support the BDS movement because we it's almost like we have no choice that our tax dollars are going to fund this genocide. It's it's a really sickening feeling, but talk about how people can support the BDS movement and we'll we'll end it there. Well, I think what people need to realize that there's there several aspects to the idea of BDS. BDS meaning boycott, divestment and sanctions. And so I think we need to demand sanctions. We need that our government impose sanctions, severe sanctions on the state of Israel immediately, without delay. I think all events, you know, people think of boycotting, uh, you know, not buying Israeli avocados or Israeli hummus, which is important. This is good. But, you know, boycotting means making sure that if there's an Israeli representative coming in to speak at a college, then that event is boycotted. It means that if there is an event, um, you know, at the Kennedy Center or something where the Israeli symphony is playing, then there we are there to boycott and we are there to make sure people know why. It means that we push as hard as we can so Israeli teams cannot participate in any kind of athletic events, any kind of a- a- academic events, any kind of cultural events, that there are constant, constant protests in front of the Israeli embassy demanding that they be kicked out of Washington, D.C., and demanding that the American ambassador be returned from Tel Aviv, and so on and so on. Oh, just like Colombia. I think Colombia... Colombia did that, yes. Colombia did that, and and Cuba doesn't have any, does not recognize Israel at all. These are the two two voices of of conscience in in the region, you know, in this this area. And that is what boycott, divestment, and sanctions mean. It means real action in, in a big way and demanding that our elected officials that we vote for, that we pay, whose salaries we pay, heed to this call to impose sanctions, boycott, and demand divestment from the state of Israel or anybody who's connected to the state of Israel. And once we do that, we'll be able to see change. It's not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen, you know, from an act of, uh, I don't know, heavenly uh, intervention. It's going to be us on the ground working as hard as we can to get this done, to get our elected officials to do the right thing. And it's not going to be easy. 
Miko, I'm so glad that you were able to speak with us. And I hope that we can speak again because obviously we have a long way to go and we have a continue this fight to a free Palestine. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. So what's a terrorist? They're calling me a terrorist. Like they don't know who the terrorist. When they put it on me, I tell them this. I'm all about peace and love. They're calling me a terrorist. Like they don't know who the terrorist. Insulting my intelligence. Oh, how these people judge. This is On the Ground. Onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we have big news to report in here, here in the United States, and as, as well in Gaza, in the unfolding genocide, horrific attack on the Palestinian people. But we're going to start here in the United States first. And where do you want to start? Well, let's start with this ominous development. That is to say, Congressman Michael Johnson of Louisiana, Shreveport to be more specific, is the new speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, second in line behind Kamala Harris to assume the office of the presidency. This is ominous because Congressman Johnson was in many ways the intellectual architect of the attempted coup on January 6, 2021. He came up with this cockamamie scheme that said that Congress could reject electoral votes from certain states based upon the premise that the state legislature had not executed these changes, perhaps a court had mandated those changes. And we can expect those sorts of shenanigans to unfold in January 2025 after the November 2024 election. I think that that's virtually a guarantee, not to mention the fact that he is from the hardest of the hard right of the Republican conference, that is suggesting that perhaps within a few weeks, there'll be a government shutdown, which will jeopardize checks to soldiers and others, reducing some perhaps to exist off eating dog food, cat food, if they're lucky. <clears throat> Mr. Johnson is the heart and soul of what could be called the Ku Caucus. Some might call it the Cuckoo Caucus, 
But in any event, it's a very serious matter. And I haven't even gotten to the other point, which is that he's stridently hostile to the anti-LBGTQ community. Uh, He seeks to criminalize their status. If he had his way, they would be behind bars. He's obviously hostile to gay marriage. He may seek to reverse the Supreme Court decision, the Oberfeld, uh, Oberfeld case from a few years ago that validated uh, that kind of marriage. So we have moved a step closer to what, in a present way, you have termed the F word, that is to say fascism. We need to take this very seriously. I note that at the same time, there have been other Republicans either stating or their intent, stating proposals or making moves to crack down on what we consider other human rights. You have uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, outlawing the Students for Justice in Palestine in that state. And also Senator Tim Scott another member of Congress proposing that any students that aren't Americans be deported if they protest in support of Palestinian rights and that the schools that allow protests should be defunded. Yeah, we're getting really close to many of the things that we talked about in terms of the F word, all our F word sessions on uh, talks and conversations on fascism. And they used to call it creeping, but it means like galloping at this point. And the University of Pennsylvania in your city, speaking of Philadelphia, is ground zero in that regard. That is to say they had a Palestine literary festival. Uh, Many of the Zionist billionaires who donate to that Ivy League school took objection to that. They want to rid themselves of the president of that school recently installed. Then there is the dean of the Wharton School of Business, who happens to be a black woman. They don't like her pressing the matter of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a buzzword in business circles nowadays. They claim that the number of Jewish students enrolled in Penn have declined. And then they've gone for the gusto insofar as many of them are upset with the fact that Penn defended the right of a transgender swimmer to be on the women's swimming team. So Penn is setting the pace that other schools, it's seemingly, such as Harvard, are desperately trying to keep up with. It seems as if there is competitive pressure uh, to move to the right, and that if you only for example, you, you cannot say, for example, what the Secretary General of the United Nations said, which is that the suffocating occupation has led to this crisis and then couple that with a condemnation of Hamas. That's unacceptable. As a matter of fact, do not be surprised if the Secretary General of the United Nations is forced to resign. Israel has called for his resignation. The United States has been eerily quiet uh, with regard to whether or not they think he should stay or leave. And that would be ironic because Secretary General Guterres has really carried a lot of water for U.S. imperialism. But I guess he hasn't carried enough. 
But let, let me mention a few other points, too, which is that chickens are coming to home to roost for Israel. That is to say that during the conflict in Colombia on the northern coast of South America, Israel collaborated with U.S. imperialism, oftentimes going further than U.S. imperialism in terms of training death squads, for example. Right. Now, President Petro, who was part of that armed resistance, obviously he's the leader of that country. Uh, He's been in a diplomatic spat with Israel in in recent days and weeks with recriminations uh, flowing from the Israeli side. And at the same time, uh, he has traveled to China this week where a strategic cooperation agreement has been inked with the People's Republic of China, which was not good news for Washington. And I should also mention that, according to other reports, one of the reasons why Israel is so upset with these folks who are detained in Gaza right now is that apparently it includes four leading Israeli generals and a small country like Israel They feel they cannot afford to be deprived of that many military leaders. And then the icing on the cake may be the article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs by former Pentagon chief Bob Gates. And the picture he paints puts all of us in jeopardy. What he suggests is that there are about eight or ten people on this so-called executive committee of the U.S. ruling elite, speaking of Biden and Kamala Harris and Blinken and Lloyd Austin, Jake Sullivan, uh, Bill Burns, the CIA director. And as they're sitting in the Situation Room in the White House, they're being overwhelmed. They don't have enough bandwidth to deal with the problems they've helped to create, be it Ukraine, be it Israel-Palestine, be it North Korea, be it Iran. And it illustrates a point we've mentioned before on these airwaves, which is that the Yale historian uh, Paul Kennedy wrote this book about declining empires and how they become enmeshed in what he called imperial overstretch. That is to say, at a certain point, they have declining resources. Witness, for example, in the United States, the high cost of borrowing nowadays, which is going to keep the deficit and the debt uh, heading towards the stratosphere, but they have escalating problems. And that's a mismatch between resources and challenges. And they are being overwhelmed, but I'm afraid to say that we right here, particularly in the District of Columbia, are going to be the ultimate victims of this crisis that's turning into a catastrophe. When I really look at the, so much of, unfortunately, so much of what we face, there's a a horrific attack on the people in Palestine and Gaza. A genocide is occurring, yet people are being criminalized for acknowledging the facts. And I'm wondering if this isn't just the most outrageous example of how they've gotten away with the, lie about Russiagate, the hoax about Russiagate. Then they were able to get away with a lie about Ukraine and not tell people that 14,000 people had been killed in this civil war uh, between Kiev and its own people in the, in the eastern part of the country that we fomented a coup 
overthrowing the democratically elected uh, government there and giving rise to this more powerful far right faction that would attack, would attack ethnic Russians that we did that, that we, you know, cultivated that crisis in addition to going right up to Russia's border after we promised we would not go one inch east of East Germany after the fall of the Berlin wall that we, you know, in other words, I'm thinking that now the spin machine, the propaganda machine is just totally bankrupt. It's broken because people can see on their screens every day. They can see even some of the corporate media now is, is having, is forced to give some true reports from Gaza, right? And the numbers don't lie that there are thousands of people killed and more under the rubble you know, tens of thousands wounded at this point that the people have been deprived of water, food, fuel, and that this is a killing machine, that this is genocide. So I say this because, you know, as someone who tries to, you know, give facts and give news, it's just a wonder to me that people want to take these kinds of, of measures to silence people from telling the truth. That's as scary to me as this new house speaker is to you. Oh, I see. Well, uh, I think I think it's connected. Uh, as I was telling you off air, I happen to know this Cornell professor, Russell Rickford, who spoke at a post-October 7th rally in Ithaca, New York. And now he is in hiding. He is in seclusion. His Courses have been taken over by a fellow professor because of the ominous and dangerous threats that have been directed towards him. He's a black American, uh, by the way, actually of, of Guyanese, Afro-Guyanese ancestry. And he is just one example amongst many of how perilous our so-called free speech rights are, which should only uh, come as a shock to those who don't pay attention. I think I reported on this program uh, some days ago, post-October 7th, about the Yates case out of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1957. Uh, this is in the case that's uh, adjudicating the anti-communist prosecutions of U.S. Communist Party leaders. And what the Supreme Court basically said is, well, you have the right to protest as long as you're not presenting any kind of challenge. <laughs> which is basically you have the right to protest as long as you're ineffectual. And so I guess what they're telling our movement, this may be the good news, is that we're being effective by raising our voices, by occupying the Capitol, by having rallies at these various universities. Gerald, I know we, we have to wind up, but I wanted to kind of segue uh, into a couple points about Gaza because there were uh, two reports uh, this this week that this threatened or vaunted you know ground invasion actually had been tested and that the Israeli forces had been repelled out of Gaza. And there are also these disturbing reports, uh, one coming from Middle East Eye, which I consider a very reliable source, that Israel has attempted to use or has actually used some type of chemical 
gas. Some call it nerve gas. Others are saying other types of gas, but to put this gas into the tunnels of Gaza. And one report said that they had actually killed 50 of their, of their own people, 50 hostages. And that, uh, that this is the strategy really not so much to have this ground invasion, but to continue to assault by air, just as they shot from a distance peaceful protesters at the Great March of Return, assault women, children, and men, civilians from the air, and then also try these this incursion into the tunnels with nerve gas. Well, what I don't understand about that story is that apparently Israel, which we've been told, values the life of its citizens very highly. Recall they've traded hundreds of Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier, if Israel, in fact, plans to use gas to flush out Hamas fighters from what's called the Gaza Metro, 300 miles, apparently, of tunnels underground, well, won't they be killing (laughs) these detainees, these Israeli nationals that have been detained by Hamas? If so, does that mean that they've gone totally over the edge, that the regime has become not only homicidal, but suicidal? That's what I'm trying to figure out. So you've heard about this doctrine that basically says that they don't they don't want to maybe it only applies to soldiers or forces that they they don't want hostages and they they would prefer the hostages be killed rather than have to trade for them or to spare rather than spare any Palestinian life they would rather kill their own people. Well, I guess that's the operative doctrine going forward late October 2023. But well, anyway, as we know, I mean some of the detainees are children, as we know from those who have been released. Some of them are senior citizens. And of course, as noted a moment or two ago, some are top ranking Israeli generals. Right, right. Okay, well, we'll see. I mean, that's, um, we can't look away. We can't, you know, obviously we can't ignore the story. We have to try our best to report out what is happening, you know, with our, within our capacity and, you know, with everything we have here. And we'll continue to do that. You can also pick up the book, I Dare Say, and Acknowledging Radical Histories, which really, to me, help to encapsulate so many of the stories, so many of the issues that we've discussed on the show from you know, the the dawning of the apocalypse in terms of, of settler colonialism, you know, racism and slavery in in this hemisphere and right up to the current news when we've talked about Washington, D.C. and the book Revolting Capital, you know, from we've gone over 500 years on this show, Gerald. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure... People listening, it's been an education for me and it's been an education for so many of the faithful listeners. And so we really thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows 
on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. Our podcast is also on all your podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, all those, and iHeartRadio also. So check out the podcast at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, though, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.